Welcome to the 1-0 Podcast, hosted by Joe Cook and Brad Kellner. The 1-0 Podcast is part of the Everyone Gets a Trophy Podcast channel. Today on the 1-0 Podcast, we'll talk the dismal week of Longhorn basketball with losses at home to Kansas and on the road at West Virginia before getting into some of the most intriguing moves from this season's coaching carousel. We'll also talk a little bit about one more hire Texas made, uh, stealing a assistant coach from their biggest rival. Listen to both our show and Everyone Gets a Trophy, hosted by Kevin Dunn and Scipio Tex, a.k.a. Paul Wadlington. Subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review and like the podcast to let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about. If you'd like to contact us directly, send us emails at everyone, with the number one, gets a trophy at gmail.com. That's everyone gets a trophy at gmail.com. And the 1-0 podcast, as well as Everyone Gets a Trophy, would not be possible without these sponsors. Audio-visual consultations, avconsultations.com, the website, 512-255-8678, the phone number to call when you want the home TV setup of your dreams. Make that a New Year's resolution to make your home the place to be for friends and family with that custom TV setup that only AV consultations can provide. And this podcast is also brought to you by Altstadt Beer. It is German beer made here, brewed locally in Central Texas, available wherever you shop for beer in the 512. Also popping up more and more in the DFW and Houston areas as well. It is Altstadt Beer, no impurities, no regrets. So you know the phrase, the writing is on the wall. After after the last two games for Texas basketball, is it spray-painted on the wall at this point? Is it, it's is in the wall, blood. Does the wall even exist at this point? Two back-to-back you know, losses uh, for the Longhorns. Losing at home against Kansas uh, gave the Jayhawks a really spirited effort, but as as occurred often under Shaka Smart, not enough at the end, and then a just total embarrassment, probably the worst loss of Shaka Smart's career. Um, and there's been quite a few at Texas, a game that, as I think I noted, they pick up nicknames for stuff like that. You had Route 66 way back in the day for Texas football, and I don't know if this is – I don't know if there's been a decided nickname on this, but – the effort was certainly terrible enough to uh, be deserving of one. Yeah, we should almost try to come up with a nickname for what took place. The Morgantown Massacre feels pretty accurate for what happened on Monday night. We've forgotten about that Kansas game pretty quickly, didn't we? I mean, they did play the Jayhawks pretty damn well. The number six team in the country. They're now up to number three as we record this on a Thursday. But Down to Sousa. They played pretty well. <laughs> yeah, I would have messed that was a couple of nights ago in Lawrence. But they played Kansas well. I mean, Texas was winning for the majority of that game. But like we've seen often under Shaka Smart, you're right, Joe. They weren't able to close it out. And in a matchup of wits, you're going to side with Bill Self over Shaka Smart any day of the week. Kansas made enough plays down the stretch to get the win in Austin. And I'll tell you what, I'm not making any excuses for what happened on Monday night, but there is no tougher turnaround in this conference than the play on Saturday, then have to go up to Morgantown and play West Virginia on the road on Monday night. Like That's the toughest possible scenario you could have as a Big 12 team. Does that come close? To excusing losing by 38 points? Absolutely not. But that is a tough task. I figured Texas was going to be in trouble considering how much they invested into that Kansas game and considering that trip they had to make and playing that team on the road on Monday night. I figured it wasn't going to be good, but I didn't think it'd be this bad. The largest loss 
in Big 12 history for the Longhorns. It's the worst loss that Texas basketball has had since the 80s, Joe. So since you and I have been alive, Texas has not lost a game by 38 points, and they did that on Monday. Yeah, it was it was a brutal effort, and basically what these past two games has revealed is that outside Jericho Sims, there's not a lot of post presence for Texas. Will Baker still has a long way to go. Kai Jones probably has even further. You can see him coming along little by little this season and doing some amazing stuff with the blocks and his utilizing his length. But the Longhorns try to be like the Rockets, and that just doesn't work when in the second half against Kansas you shoot one of nine from three. And you know who's getting those boards? Udoka Azubuke. Yeah. He's getting those boards. He picked up nine, and then he also added 17 points. And, of course, Devin Dotson coming back for Kansas, one of the toughest matchups in the conference. I think that Matt Coleman is a plus defender in this conference. Devin Dotson still got 21 points. Yeah. And that's not too much of a knock on Matt Coleman. That just speaks to how good Devin Dotson is and how – good this Kansas team can be when they have everybody available to play. Yeah, you don't feel too bad about losing a close game to Kansas. Now, everybody does it. You in this conference. you and I we grew up during some great years with Rick Barnes. Like my goal for Texas basketball is to be pretty damn close to the level that Kansas is on. So there's always going to be a part of me that thinks when they come to your arena, you need to beat them. You need to beat them. It's not going to happen every year, of course, because they are blue blood and they're always a top five or ten team. But I feel like more often than not, Texas basketball should be splitting season series with Kansas. That hasn't happened at all. I think Shaka Smart is now just last season. I think was the yeah, only one. I think he's two in six. Excuse me. Texas is two and sixteen against Kansas since winning in Allen Fieldhouse back in 2011. But yes, Shaka's only win against the Jayhawks came last year in Austin. And oh, by the way, Azubuke did not play. He was out for the majority of the year for the Jayhawks last year. So they were a little bit shorthanded in that contest as well. But yeah, Texas, they fought hard and people weren't too discouraged with what happened on Saturday. But then Monday night happened, Mm -hmm. and then the conversations go from, okay, well, maybe you're close. Maybe you've got a chance to put some wins together and maybe steal a game against a good team or two in this league and find your way into the big dance to after Monday you're like, all right, this thing is over. This thing is over. Writing on the wall, spray paint, blood, whatever the hell you're using, it's Sharpie. It's Mm -hmm. Seth Davis Sharpie on the wall right now that this thing is over. And, I mean, I, I wish I had any reason to be optimistic. Like, technically, the season's not over. Sure, Texas can get on a run. They can get hot. They can make the NCAA tournament. Chaka Smart saves his job. Everybody is happy. But I have nothing to point to after what I saw on Monday night to make you feel good about that happening at all. That that dunk, I think, really was the turning point of this entire season. Because not only is it, and we all, we've seen it these past three years, that despite middling basketball, emphatic dunks can really get a team going, and it helps. And I don't really blame Kai Jones for trying to save the ball, and, you know, he's, he's trying to make a play there. That, that's fine. But for, I think, who, who I'm, I want to find the clip before I speak about it, but for Ramey, I think, for just anybody on the floor to not run the floor and then watch that dunk happen, mm-hmm. I think that, Down just, on the baseline. That, that, just, that just spoke volumes right there. Yeah. That's the type of game that even if, this is your first time hearing about the trials and tribulations of Texas basketball. I would wager it's actually probably your second. Like, if you don't really care about Texas basketball, you're going to hear about a 97-59 game. You don't have and, to care about any college basketball at all. Right. If you see something like that happening to the University of Texas, it's going to catch your eye. I mean, I saw on Twitter, 
and just the talking heads all over the place, they were talking about this. And how often does anyone care about a 6 o'clock game being played on Monday night on ESPNU? Like, you would need a benches-clearing brawl type of thing for that to be any sort of headline, or you would need Texas to lose by 40, which is basically what happened. Yeah, everybody was talking about it, and you talked about Route 66 for Texas football. It's like, that's when things get out of hand. That's when people start to pay attention. That's when Longhorn fans and boosters and folks get really, really upset. You can lose at Texas, especially in not football. You can lose at Texas, but just don't get embarrassed. Don't be an embarrassment to the university, and Monday night was an embarrassment to the university. And it's a really strange spot, too, because the team's still 12-6. and six. They've won two-thirds of their games this season. Granted, they played a really terrible out-of-conference yeah. schedule. They, they beat one team worth a darn this year in Purdue, and they're not living up, I think, to the expectations that they had for this season. You're 2-4 and four in conference. It's, it's, you know, everybody probably are, has jumped off the boat, but they're still 12-6. and six. That opportunity's there, but I think everybody just recognizes at this point, after you lose, what, 97-59, that, you know, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. There, there's, there's few wins very likely ahead of this team, with this schedule. Yeah, they still have to play Baylor one more time. They have to go up to Kansas. They've got to play West Virginia again. They still have to play Texas Tech twice. I mean, those are your top four teams in this conference, and you still have to play them. You've got TCU twice, which I think is a pretty good basketball team. They just upset Texas Tech earlier this week. There's a lot of tough games. Plus, LSU, you dip out of the conference for the Big 12 SEC Challenge coming up this Saturday. LSU hasn't lost an SEC game yet this year. They're 7-0 and in the conference, so... Look, technically, do you have a chance? Sure, you get a win this weekend, and I think at minimum, at minimum, Texas would be considered for the tournament if they go eight and ten in the conference. Yeah. Now, if they can get to five hundred or above five hundred, then okay, you feel okay that they've got an actual shot to get in. But at minimum, eight and ten might be enough to get you into the first four in Dayton. But I don't, I don't know if I see six more conference wins for this team. Ken Palm has them seven and eleven. Those are his projections right now using his analytics, but. Even that, to me, feels like a little bit of a stretch. I don't know how many more winnable games there are with this Texas basketball team in this conference. No, there, there seem to be few. And you know, this was a year where your entire roster is guys you want. You, you've got the offensive guy. You've got the defensive guy. You've got all this stuff, and it just all has fallen flat. And at, at a certain point, we're well past that certain point, but at a certain point, it all falls on the head coach, and I think that's definitely the case yeah. for this season. And how about what T.J. Ford tweeted? Yeah, night? and now like, you know, it gets the attention of those who don't care much, and it gets the attention of those who have their numbers retired in the rafters. People, this this type of stuff, you don't just lose 40-point games and go about your business. No, no doubt about that. T.J. Ford saying it's very disappointing and disheartening to watch the direction Texas Longhorn basketball has now taken I've never witnessed a blowout of this magnitude in Big 12 play like tonight. That's not hyperbole. He was actually right. That was the worst loss for Texas in Big 12 history. And, Joe, you can blame Shaka Smart all you want, and he deserves a lot of the blame for what's going on with this basketball program. This hire has not worked out. There's no doubt about that. And you can blame Shaka for not bringing over the havoc that he ran at VCU that led him to a Final Four that is really the reason why he got this job in the first place. You can blame Shaka Smart all you want, and you should, and we have, but there are three people you really should be blaming for the state of this basketball program right now. I'll go in order. First one is Steve Patterson, the guy who hired Shaka Smart, who destroyed this athletics department in the span of 22 months. It's really impressive. 
It's like Baxter from Anchorman eating the whole wheel of cheese. Like, you can't be mad. It's almost impressive what he did. Uh, he made two of the worst hires in school history with Charlie Strong and Shaka Smart. But it's not just the hire because this wasn't viewed as a bad hire. Shaka wouldn't have been my first choice, but everybody around the country was calling this damn near a home run hire for Texas basketball. He felt like the next up-and-coming thing. So hiring Shaka Smart wasn't an issue. The contract was the issue. Seven-year deal. The first six years fully guaranteed. Six fully guaranteed years at $3 million per year. That is absurd. That is absolutely absurd. And Steve Patterson needed a guarantee from Shaka Smart that he was going to run havoc, that he wasn't going to completely try to change up his system when he got to Texas. You needed that. So that's a problem. The hire was wrong and the contract was ridiculous. Then you look at Mike Parent, who was the interim AD after Steve Patterson. He gave Shaka Smart an extension after Shaka's first year. He gave him another year and a raise after year one. Texas was 20-13, and 13, and they lost in the first round of the tournament as a higher seed. That's not a successful season, is it? We're not viewing that as a good thing for Texas basketball. For some reason, Mike Perrin gives him an extension and a raise. And then you got to put some of this on Chris Del Conte for this year only. Because CDC could have made the move after last season. I would have argued the move should have been made. But no, he decided to give Shaka another chance. Maybe it's the money excuse. Maybe it's the fact that the buyout was so high. Maybe he likes that Shaka Smart is clean and he's not getting in trouble with the FBI or the NCAA like so many other programs out there are. But, man, I was told CDC really cares about basketball. And to me, if he really cared about basketball, he wouldn't have brought Shaka Smart for another year because this thing was trending in the wrong direction all of last year it feels like it felt like a disservice that he was brought back for another year. Maybe it was the NIT run, maybe it was the buyout. I don't know, but all three of those guys deserve some blame for why this program is where it's at. It's ultimately Shaka's fault. He's the head coach, but the fact that this has been allowed to go on as long as it has, and the fact that the buyout is where it is, that goes on the guys calling the shots with the athletic department. I I agree one hundred percent, and. You know, all the problems with the program are now Shaka's, and if he is not able to solve them, it's going to be, it's going to be his his ass on the line. One one last thing for me, did you hear what Bob Huggins said after the game on Monday? Probably something very complimentary of Smart. Absolutely, he said, "quote It's not Shaka. Shaka is a good coach. It's not that we made shots and we're coming off being embarrassed." End quote. So, not that any coach is ever going to put down another coach, but you know, Bob Huggins enjoys his two free wins he gets every year against Shaka Smart, who is now 33-45 and 45 in the Big 12, 15-32 and 32 against ranked opponents, and 13-34 and 34 on the road overall since taking over at the University of Texas. Rick Barnes missed the tournament one time in 17 years, Joe. Shaka's about to miss it for the third time in five years. Yeah. That almost seemed impossible, but that's where we're at right now. What about some other jobs that turned over? This time in the pigskin world. <laughs> Something more positive, round, huh? Yeah, instead of the round ball world. Well, I mean, with, with college football, there's 130 FBS jobs, countless FCS, you know, a bunch of different places you can find coaches at. Um, but there's only 32 NFL jobs, and there's only, a what, 60-something Power 5 jobs. Mm-hmm. So to go over and talk about each big move on the coaching carousel would – probably go past the time we have on this podcast hmm. but I think that it's worth talking about some of the power five moves that were made and maybe even some of the moves outside the power five as it pertains to Texas and I think the smartest place to start off is with the Carolina Panthers Carolina 
gets rid of uh, Riverboat Ron, hmm. gets rid of Ron Rivera. Uh, owner is throwing around a lot of money, uh, just not a, in general for this coaching search. And they go and get Baylor's Matt Rule. Not only do they get Baylor's Matt Rule, they get LSU's Joe Brady to call the offense as well. So I think this may be probably, you know, the Cowboys are always going to be a big deal no matter what they do. And I think we talked about the McCarthy hire. But as far as the world of Texas football and football in general, seems like Rule going to the Panthers was the, probably the biggest move, if not one of the biggest moves of the carousel. Yeah, you always hear the phrase splash hire. Mike McCarthy is not a splash hire. You know what you're going to get out of Mike McCarthy. I think it was a great hire for the Cowboys, but, I mean, Matt Rule is a splash hire. He's the up-and-coming young dude who bowled out, who did an incredible job in Waco in three years, and everybody knows his name because of what he did with that Baylor football program, and the Panthers are taking a chance by bringing him in, and obviously Joe Brady. I mean, that's as splash hire as it gets with what he did in his one year with the LSU Tigers, leading one of the best offenses in college football history winning a national championship. That is a very intriguing combination to see what those two guys can do up in Carolina for the next couple of years. And you're right, David Tepper, the new president, owner of the Carolina Panthers, he's throwing money around left and right. He's given Matt Rule a lot of money, a lot of years, and a lot of control to try to turn this thing around. Matt Rule did that at Temple. He did that in Waco at Baylor. And the Panthers have some good players. They obviously have Christian McCaffrey. He's one of the best players in the league. They need a quarterback. I don't know if Cam Newton's going to be brought back. The Panthers have kind of a cheap out from him if they want to. I don't think Kyle Allen's going to be the guy. I don't know if Will Greer's going to be the guy with what we saw last year. So they still have to get a quarterback, but it's way easier to rebuild in the NFL than it is in college football. And considering the rebuilding jobs that Matt Rule did, and once again, in Temple and Waco, then I think uh, I think he's got a shot to be pretty successful. I'm very excited to see how this thing goes. You don't have to rebuild by going to rural Texas and rural Louisiana and begging players to come to your program. <laughs> exactly. You rebuild by getting out the checkbook, and your owner has a large checkbook. So that's a huge advantage there for yeah. Matt Rule. And this is a guy that, even though, and I thought this was a dumb move at the time, this is a guy that the Colts interviewed after he went 1-11 at Baylor. This is a guy who's been thought of very highly in football circles for a long time. Uh, the Temple years were kind of his coming onto the scene and him making his name known, but being at Baylor and go, taking that program from the depths it was at based off the previous head coach to where he's at, to where it's at now, competing for the Big 12, uh, competing in the Sugar Bowl, that was, that's what put it over the top. And, and credit to Matt Rule for being very forthright, I, at least I believe, throughout most of the process. He told – Players, recruits, even Baylor, like, you know, if I get this opportunity, I'm going to talk about it. Yeah. I think as far as coaches go, as far as other programs and departures, arrivals we've seen, I think Matt Rule handled it about as well as anybody could yeah. when you're leaving college for the NFL. That's a tough spot to be in. Mm-hmm. I, I think there were times where Matt Rule was denying any involvement with the NFL. You hear varying reports. He even tweeted something that said, realize realize, realize, which Smith. seemed to be about what was happening with the NFL and that coaching search. But, look, I don't, I don't fault a guy for leaving yeah. any college job for the NFL, but especially going for Baylor, which Baylor's been pretty damn good over the last decade. But that's probably the peak. That's probably as high as you could get at Baylor is getting to the Sugar Bowl and playing with Georgia and playing for a Big 12 championship game. So he got out at the right time. He struck while the iron's hot. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm rooting for him. I'm rooting for him. He's a likable dude. We've met him a couple of times. He's a really good guy. 
Uh, I'm very excited to watch the Carolina Panthers and see how they turn things around up there. I mean, and also speaking of owners throwing around money, Baylor has made a very big point to invest not only in its football program but in its head coaches. I of think, course, I think the reports well, they wanted were, to keep our Bryles around, so you know they're willing to do whatever it takes to win. I think the the you know with Baylor being a private school, it doesn't get out, but I think it was definitely north of six million, maybe even north of seven million that they were offering. What ba- what uh, Rule was getting on a yearly basis? Yeah, bless. So you so you go from Matt Rule to another extremely hot coaching prospect. In Dave Aranda. In Baylor, this is something I think is going to be very interesting to follow because this is the Big 12. You go from, going back, Art Bryles doing the veer and shoot, uh, Lincoln Riley bringing his version of the air raid. Uh, It's about offensive innovation in this conference, and I don't think, aside from Gary Patterson, there's another big defensive guy except now with Dave Aranda. And Baylor decided to go defense and they decided to try and keep a lot of Matt Rule's staff together especially with Joey McGuire but they're going defense in the Big 12 and I think Dave Aranda is as one of the most proven defensive guys in the country right now but I'm not sure about the whole prospect of trying to go defensively in the Big 12 conference it makes sense for Gary Patterson we know how long Gary Patterson's been doing yeah, this, but, but going defense yeah. in this conference? I mean, TCU's really struggled the last few years. Like, when the Horn Frogs got into this conference, they kind of took the league by storm, and what, in their third year, they were a game away from the college football playoff. They were a bad fourth quarter away against Baylor from making the Final Four, but they, like, I don't know if it's really worked for them over the last few years, and Maybe they're trying something. You know, the offensive coordinator hire for Baylor is going to be really important. If you could pair up a great offensive mind with a Dave Aranda type, then you could be successful pretty quickly. But, yeah, I'm with you. I'm, I'm very intrigued to see how this thing works. And there's a part of me that thinks that maybe Baylor should have just hired from within. Maybe they should have hired Joey McGuire. And there were a lot of Baylor fans and Baylor players who would have wanted that hire to take place. Like, you've got such a good thing going with Matt Rule. I know you lose him, but... Why not try to keep as much of the same staff, much of the same guys as you possibly can to keep things going? That doesn't always work. Baylor wanted the splash higher. They went with Aranda, but yeah, I don't know. It's his first time ever being a head coach. Like, Matt Rule wasn't overly qualified. He didn't have, like, a huge resume, but he had been a head coach before. We've never seen Dave Aranda be a head coach, so I, I'm curious to, to see how it goes. He's been he's been under some good head coaches. Sure. He's been, uh, was, was he with Bielema or Chris at Wisconsin? He was with... One of those two. Bielema had a success. Yeah, he's, he's with he's Brett. Mm-hmm. Been with Les Miles, been with Ed Ogeron. Uh, so he's got a lot of different sources of uh, to, to take information from and, and some experience from. But it's just going to be an odd hire. And I think, one, or to me, it's a little bit of a, a odd hire. And he, he looks like he has made his offensive coordinator choice. Jorge Munez, uh, who was an analyst. Mm, I didn't even hear about that. He was an analyst at LSU this past season, so... Uh, a guy who may be a little bit versed in the Joe Brady offense coming with him to Baylor. So we'll see how this goes. He's going to try and keep a lot of the guys on staff, probably going to keep Joey McGuire. And while I think it would have worked in the short term, we don't know a lot about Joey McGuire building a Power 5 football program in the long term. So him getting more experience doing that, uh, no matter where it's at, very likely to remain Baylor at this point, I think will help Aranda, help him within this state. Seems like a good fit. Aranda was seemingly kind of quiet at LSU, but now he's going to be. They didn't have a great defensive year this past year. Now, as anyone in the Big 12 knows, it's tough to defend when you're scoring points at as rapid of a pace as LSU's offense was. But 
and the two playoff games, their defense really balled out. And, hey, Joe, did you know that Dave Aranda and Tom Herman were roommates in college? We're going to hear that a lot. Did you know that? Did you know that? Just get ready. Brace yourself. Every time these two teams play, you're going to hear it a hundred times. Yeah, just like Charlie Brewer, did he get offered by Texas? Ah, that thing again. So uh, we'll keep going down the carousel. I will try and go through the G5 hires really quickly. And there's only a handful of them that are really interesting, but a couple of them pertain to Texas. Number one is UTSA. Get rid of Frank Wilson, who was the second coach, I believe, in that program's history. He has gone to McNeese State and had some choice words yeah, how about for that, UTSA. Uh, but Jeff what a, Trailer. What a joke that is. Jeff, like, you can't get the job done at UTSA. You take a smaller job at McNeese State and then you rip the former school in your introductory press conference? What a chicken you-know-what move right there from Wilson. Some people have some different approaches. But UTSA yeah. goes with Jeff Trailer. Uh, after having Larry Coker, who was you know old and national championship winning coach, to try and start the program, uh, I think age caught up with him. He moved on and hired Wilson for his Louisiana connections and recruiting. Didn't really work out well. Now they hire probably the the one of the godfathers. I'm sure there are many, but one of the godfathers of high school coaching in this in this era in this state. And Jeff Trailer, uh, Gilmer head coach, I think three state titles mm-hmm. named the the stadium there is named after him. Was hired by Charlie Strong, ended up being uh, hired at SMU, followed Chad Morris from SMU to Arkansas. But uh, once UTSA opened up, that was the job Jeff Trailer took, and he even brought some other Longhorns. Uh, former analyst Will Stein, Lake Travis's offensive coordinator, will be the wide receivers coach, Good and dude. former. Offensive line coach Matt Maddox will be his coordinator. So Jeff Trailer trying to build something in San Antonio, and they'll be on the Texas schedule these next couple of years. Yeah, I'll root for UTSA when they're not playing Texas. I mean, I'll root for Jeff Trailer. I want that program to be successful, and uh, I want Jeff Trailer to be successful. He's a great guy, obviously a, a legend amongst coaching circles here in the state of Texas for what he did at Gilmer for a decade and a half. Uh, I think this was a good hire by UTSA. You know he's got some recruiting ties. You know he's close with the high school High school is here in the state. I think this one uh, could pan out well. I think he brings more to the table than Wilson does when he was hired. Just as a general point, I think for these G5 jobs that are in these big cities, you know, the UTSAs, uh, the U of H's, even the SMU's, you're at a little bit of a better advantage compared to maybe somebody like, I don't know, Southern Miss, Tulsa, something like that, because you can be the hometown team that somebody returns to. That's what Houston's made hay off of. That's what SMU has done, welcoming transfers back. And while there's very good high school football in San Antonio, it, it's not at the same, quite the same level as Austin and Houston, or excuse me, Houston and Dallas. But if you can get the transfers to come back home, play at home, if you can leverage guys who maybe go to other, be, to be backups at Power Five programs, come be starters at UTSA. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's UTSA was one of the schools that Kelvante Dixon. Uh, Keontae Ingram's little brother was considering, and a lot of that has to do with Jeff Trailer. So he he should be able to recruit Texas well. He should be able to recruit San Antonio well, uh, but you have to win, or else those guys are going to stop coming to your games. Yeah, you don't have to win that much, but you have to win more than what Frank Wilson was doing. And guys fall through the cracks every year. Of course, you could get transfers, but man, I mean, there's there's so many high school football players in the state of Texas. They can't all go to UT or A&M or Baylor or TCU or Texas Tech. Like they're they're gonna fall through the cracks sometimes. And 
that's the job to, to for the UTSA coaching staff to try to find those diamonds in the rough and uh, see if they can turn them into something. But yeah, I'd love UTSA. They they went to a bowl in Wilson's first year. They didn't go the last three years. I would love for them to be around a bowl competing team uh, under Jeff Trailer. It might take a year or two to get back there, but I I think that's what he could do in San Antonio. All right, next G five job. This one definitely relates to Texas a lot more. Uh, in multiple senses, South Florida, Charlie Strong got fired Can't once again. It. Can't believe it. And they hired Clemson offensive coordinator Jeff Scott. He's a guy that was always bounced around him and, and uh, Brent Venables as guys who would leave Dabo's staff and find their head coaching job. And Brent Venables remains in Clemson, South Carolina. But going to Tampa will be Jeff Scott. And this especially pertains to Texas because of the fact that South Florida is on Texas's schedule next season. So Texas, I think they're going to be playing a team that will be going through a little bit of turnover, not going to be running a lot of the, the same offensive stuff that they had been, uh, vestiges of the veer and shoot from before Sterling Gilbert left for McNeese State. Um, but there's, you know, there's still a South Florida team, and I'm trying to be mean to, when I say this, but I think it's a matter of fact, probably getting a coaching upgrade with yeah. Jeff Scott compared to Charlie Strong. Yeah, it can't be a downgrade. South Florida was bad last year. They were 4-8. and eight. They had a freshman quarterback for the majority of the season, this kid Jordan McLeod, who will likely be the starter when the Bulls come to Austin week one next year. Uh, they lose their number one running back, though, a kid by the name of Jordan Cronkite. I, I mean, that's a game Texas has to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious, uh, you know, I don't want to use the word curious too much, but Jeff Scott did great things at Clemson. <laughs> South Florida's a little bit harder to win at than Clemson. He's got a lot of building of that program to do. So, yeah, there's going to be a transition period. I don't think South Florida's going to create too many problems for Texas on game one of this new coaching staff. But you're right, Texas will get to see the coaching debut or head coaching debut of Jeff Scott at this level. Should be interesting. All right, last G5 job I picked up was Florida Atlantic previous home of Lane Kiffin. Going to go to Willie Taggart. Willie Taggart fired from Florida State after just over a season, about a season and a half. Uh, made a lot of stops these past couple years. Gone from Western Kentucky to South Florida to Oregon for a season to Florida State. And Florida State basically decided to pull the plug. They were not. They they knew that there was a lot of progress that needed to be made after Jimbo Fisher left that program. But even though some progress was being made, Florida State Brass decided it was not being made fast enough yeah. and pulled the plug on Willie Taggart pretty quickly. It's hard to argue. I mean, I know. If you have the money, why not? I know. If you believe it and you have the money, why not? Where's Taggart now? FAU? FAU. That's the job that he took? Yeah. I'd, I mean, people thought it was crazy that Taggart got the Oregon job, and I think Oregon kind of lucked out with the fact that Florida State opened up and Taggart's a Florida guy, so he wanted to go back home and coach closer to home. Uh, that thing didn't work out at all. They Some, some would argue they kept him for too long, and he was only there for two years. Uh, Mike Norvell's intriguing, man. I mean, what he did at Memphis was, was pretty solid in the couple of years that he was there, and they were playing in a New Year's Six Bowl this year. They held their own against Penn State for a long, long time. I think he can be pretty good. I mm-hmm. think he can be pretty good. And college football needs Florida State. College football just needs blue bloods. I know Florida State's not quite blue blood, but they need their big-time programs to be relevant. Obviously, we have that conversation with Texas around these parts, but I wouldn't mind Florida State being good again. Miami, like, we need we need some good schools in the state of Florida once again because that's such a recruiting pipeline. I uh, would love to see some talented players out there. But, yeah, uh, I'm cool with the hire. I think he was one of the bigger 
coaching candidates out there. It makes sense for Norvell. It's an upgrade, obviously, going from Memphis to Florida State. So I, I think it could be a good marriage. Two things. The ACC needs somebody else to be good. Yeah. They, Clemson can carry the banner as long as they can, but they're going to start to be questioned a little bit more and more if the ACC continues to be pretty poor as it has been these past yeah. few years. Clemson, like, can't afford a loss. They're right. Almost no, not like at that all. These years because the ACC is so bad. Like, they have to be undefeated <clears throat> to make the college football playoff. Uh, they do need some help. They need somebody, whether it's Florida State, whether it's Louisville to get back on track, maybe Miami to get their head out of there, you know what. Uh, yeah, you're right. I agree with you 100%. That conference needs more than one team. All right, let's get to something a little more entertaining, maybe not so much a spin on the carousel, but just something that was surprising. USC is going to hold on to Clay Helton. And I'm sure that everybody in the Pac-12 footprint, surrounding areas, uh, all every all eleven other teams in the Pac-12 are thrilled that Clay Helton is going to stick around USC, and not only that, uh, did hang on to Graham Harrell as we've talked about a lot on this podcast, and you know the implications of Texas trying to get him and him getting a three-year deal. Also, looks like they're going to grab Todd Orlando, so it's looking like Clay Helton is putting a lot of his future, if he even has one, on the offense this year in L.A. I don't even know what to make of this. First of all, pour some out for Todd Orlando's Texas Tech coaching career. Right? Didn't he take an assistant coaching job there for less than two weeks? 12 days, and then he was already gone out the door. Now, I don't blame him. Right, Going from linebacker's coach at Texas Tech to defensive coordinator at USC, that's a move you take in a heartbeat. I uh, I can't imagine that gets people going at USC, and you're right. Most Trojan fans were not happy with the fact that Clay Helton was brought back. <clears throat> I can't imagine Todd Orlando is going to incite much enthusiasm. You know, Graham Harrell, yeah, you get to keep him. That's awesome. Okay, go get a great defensive coordinator out there to pair up with Graham Harrell so you can maybe go Ed Ogeron-type bit where, yeah, you're not sure the head coach is that great, but you have such a good staff around him that uh, maybe he can be more successful. I don't know if Todd Orlando's that guy. Now, I guess in year one at Texas, the Longhorn defense was really good, so maybe Clay Helton's just open for one really good year of defense so he could save his job for another season. But I mean, after what happened with this Texas defense this past season, uh, that doesn't feel like a great hire for USC at all. Maybe things will work out a little bit better for him out there, but, uh, dude, that— We've we've spent hours on this podcast and on the radio <laughs> and you writing about it, talking about Todd Orlando. It almost feels like bad memories that I don't want to rehash right now. Not a splash hire. I I, I guess I root for him, but uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Their recruiting's in the tank. They're going to have an interesting quarterback battle. Uh, I don't think their wide receivers, except for Amon Ross, St. Brown sticking around, are yeah. going to be as good. And just think of it this way. Todd Orlando is now the caretaker of linebacker U. And... Since Malik Jefferson and Gary Johnson graduated from Texas, who from Texas played great at linebacker? Joseph Osai out of position? Not really, just because of natural ability. That's that's going to be a a struggle for USC this year. And remember a few years ago when uh, Louisville former Petrino hired Brian Van Gorder, who had been fired by about four or five different places for his last year at Louisville? Kind of seems like that. Well, people know that you're done, Clay. And this is what you're going to be able to pick up. So Clancy Pendergast was the last D.C. at USC. They ranked 60th in S&P Plus defense under Pendergast this past year. Texas ranked 68th. So it's like they downgraded. Like they fired. They, the guy that they fired actually was better this past year than the guy that they hired. Uh, 
I don't know. He's gone. Just don't get into any third and 17 situations, USC. Otherwise, you're in trouble. Yeah, maybe the, with the Pac-12, there's some there's good offense there for sure, but without it being the offensive innovation hotbed yeah. that the Big 12 is, he'll be able to do well. Maybe, maybe if he lines up against uh, Utah, maybe he'll have a pretty I'm gonna good I'm going to be ticked shot. if he does well. You know what? I changed my mind. Really? Forget I'm rooting for him. I'm going to be angry as hell if USC's defense balls out this year. Really basic stuff. Yeah, yeah. no more that. disguising, no more ridiculous blitzes from all over the field. I'm going to be ticked if that happens. And I guess that's learning. He probably should change some things, but it is going to upset a lot of Texas fans. All right, now well, let's move to probably the most interesting location in the contiguous 48 states as far as coaching, state of Mississippi. Oh, yes. So let's go with state first. Mississippi State had Joe Moorhead, won the Egg Bowl, which is big damn deal in Mississippi. You know, if, when you're not going to be able to really compete strongly for SEC titles, you got to win your rivalry games, and coaches are hired and fired based off this game. Don't pee in the end zone after a touchdown, Ole Miss. Or this, fake P, I should say. That, that's probably why Matt Luke is currently at Georgia, and we'll get to that in a minute. But there's, I think if you remember after that game, there was a sound bite that came out from Moorhead where they said, or he said, you're going to have to drag my damn Yankee ass out of here. You know, he's a Pittsburgh guy, I think, Pennsylvania guy. And that wasn't because he loved Starkville and loved Mississippi State. Of course he did. He said they're all the right things for that program. That's because if he had lost that game, he might have gotten fired, and he still ended up getting fired yeah. anyway. It's because he knew pressure was building on him because Dan Mullen had brought that program to levels it hadn't experienced before, and Joe Moorhead wasn't moving quickly enough to get it back to those levels. Joe Moorhead was terrible. He was terrible, and that was viewed as a great hire at the time. But it things didn't just, fit, but it was a great hire. Yeah, things just didn't work it was out. I mean, Dan Mullen – Dan Mullen's going to end up being the best coach they've ever had. Mississippi State's not going to get to number one in the country, probably in our lifetimes ever again. But, I mean, they were always kind of in the mix, and you felt good about their chances at least with hanging tough against some of the top teams in that conference. With Joe Moorhead, I mean, they're flirting with 500 every year. I don't know. That just didn't work out at all. That guy was really underwhelming in his two years in Starkville. They had to make the move to get rid of him. and. He's the OC at Oregon now. I think mm-hmm. that's the job he took. Maybe he'll he'll get back and be regarded as a highly touted head coaching candidate in a couple of years, but he really screwed himself with the job that he did because it's not like Dan Mullen left the cupboard super empty. Now, they didn't have Dak Prescott, who was obviously a beast when Mullen was there, but they were having good years when Mullen left. for the. That's why he got the Florida job because they were still competitive in the SEC. Once Joe Moorhead got there, I feel like it, it went worse. Like, forget trying to get the program back to those 10-win type of seasons. They went even further down once Moorhead got there. That was not what they were looking for at right. all. And his, I'm sure his Yankee ass did not really yeah, bond exactly. very well with a bunch of people from Mississippi. That's Southern hospitality. So, we'll see. I think he could do all right at Oregon. He's going to have a lot more talent. He won't have Justin Herbert, uh, but he'll probably have more wide receiver talent. Definitely better offensive line talent. He probably won't be handicapped by quarterbacks who, A, are cast-offs from other Power 5 programs like the ones he had or can actually kind of throw the football a little bit better. So they go from Joe Moorhead, well-respected offensive mind, to the ultimate in well-respected but kind of crazy offensive minds in Mike Leach. Mike hmm. Leach goes from Washington State, kind of a remote outpost of football, to Mississippi State, that is quite a culture change, and now we're finally seeing at least, you know, it's not like Mississippi State is this huge job, but it's in the SEC. It's not in 
a corner of America bordering on Idaho where not very many people live. This is Mississippi State SEC football. It's probably going to end up on national TV more times this season than Mike at regular times than Mike Leach ever appeared on while at Washington yeah, State. Yeah, won't have to be at one in the morning when he's and on he's TV. He's going to start running the pure 200 proof Good. air raid in Good. the SEC. Let's see it, baby. Let's see this stuff because that's kind of been an issue for at least Alabama. When you think of SEC, you think of Alabama until this year, and they've sometimes had trouble stopping that up-tempo spread type of offense that we've seen in the Big 12 and that we obviously have seen from Mike Leach with the air raid for the last two decades or so. I'm excited. That's a big name hire right there. And Mike Leach isn't going to have you competing for championships, but he's going to have people talking about your program, and that'll help on the recruiting trail. That'll get butts in seats. Uh, that was a good hire, and I, you know, even though it's tougher to win at Mississippi State than Washington State because of the conference, I think that was a no-brainer move for Mike Leach as well. Plus, he's getting a raise through the SEC coaches. I know we'll get to Lane Kiffin in a second, but the SEC West, Saban, Ogeron, Jimbo, Leach, Kiffin. You got Pittman now at Arkansas. Who am I missing? I'm missing one guy. Gus. And Gus Malzahn. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about... Audio gold. It's perfect. And the amount of radio drops we're going to get from these dudes every single week, it's awesome. Yeah, and compared to, what, eight years ago, the offenses that are, used to be just, all right, let's try and win with defense and hand yeah. the ball off. Now it's there's some there's some guys in there. Dude, getting you, Mike Leach and Lane Kiffin playing each other every single year is, is awesome. I you, mean, the Egg Bowl is already one of my favorite rivalry games, and it always is pretty intense. And now they've moved it to like Thursday night, so it's kind of a standalone, yeah. standalone game because there's not a lot of Thanksgiving games anymore. I always watched it, but now I'm like looking forward. Like I'm going to make sure I'm in front of a TV every time we get Mike Leach and Lane Kiffin on opposing sidelines. The one thing that keeps people from hiring Leach is they recognize his offensive mind. They recognize you know what he's able to do at these programs, but it's Mike Leach. He's a certain personality. Yep. You got to have you got to have the right type of job to be able to handle him. And that's maybe why Tennessee pushed back a little bit because Mike Leach had that big of a job. Tennessee's taken some steps back in recent mm-hmm. years, but that's, you know, Mike Leach could probably put his foot in his mouth a lot easier in Knoxville than he could in uh, Washington State. Pullman. Up in Pullman. There we yeah, go. Yeah, he would have had to for right. sure. He, he would have had to. The other thing, he's running the 3-3-5, one of the wackiest defenses hmm. that college football has right now. So, Preparing for Mississippi State is going to be a pain for opposing coaches every week. But I don't know if there's going to be as big of a pain, I guess maybe public relations-wise, and dealing with in the media and in public as Lane Kiffin's going to be. The Lane train, The Lane train pulls into Ole Miss, already involved in the Zach Evans recruitment, which is, uh, which is great if you follow that recruitment at all. Makes a perfect sense, perfect marriage there. Lane train getting back into the P5 game. Been at FAU. Uh, did that after being Saban's offensive coordinator. Probably been linked to you know a bunch of different jobs, but now Saban, the Lane Train, is pulling into Oxford. Brought some interesting uh, staffers with him. I believe he has a couple. Uh, uh, Jeff Lebby, I believe, uh, former Baylor offensive line coach, mm-hmm. as his coordinator. Remember, he had worked with Kendall Bryles, so him liking that type of offensive system makes sense. And he got Longhorn Blake Gideon uh, pulled him from U of H, I believe, to coach his special team. So. And of course, everyone's favorite Lane is going to be fun. Lane wants to yeah. be fun. He's going to be Lane. He's, you know, probably a little bit seedy, but he's going to try his. Ole Miss is all about seedy as it has been these past ten years, and 
like you mentioned, him going against Leach every every year is going to be a wild ride in the SEC. It's awesome. Joey Freshwater, hide your girls, Ole Miss. Watch out for Tinder. Watch out for Tinder with that guy. But uh, I'm excited, man. I mean, he coached at Tennessee and USC, and now he's at uh, now he's at Ole Miss. Like this guy has coached at a lot of big time programs, or at least important programs in college football. This should be fun, man. I'm telling you, the SEC is going to be – it's always fun to watch, but mm-hmm. now you got some great coaches, some high-powered offenses. finally feels like most of these teams are starting to join the 21st century when it comes to offensive game plans and schematics, which, uh, man, that's the best talent in the world generally plays in that conference. You get them running the up-tempo offense. We saw what LSU did this year. We saw what Alabama has done since they got a quarterback and all the weapons they have since on they the had outside. Lane. <laughs> yeah, really, since they had Lane Kiffin. Uh, it's it's going to be even more fun to watch. Kiss the – 21-17, 2-30 on CBS games goodbye in the SEC. I mean, these games are about to be in the 30s, 40s, and maybe even 50s as this conference starts to shift. I think it's pretty awesome. Imagine next year, Steve Sarkeesian may be up for some head coaching oh, roles. Oh, boy. So there's going to be there's gonna be some Vanderbilt characters. or something. Find, find him a job. So as far as a couple other jobs, Arkansas hiring Sam Pittman. Uh, interesting move, yeah. getting a guy who has always kind of wanted to be a leader, but was George just an offensive line coach? He's a big reason why George has recruited well on the offensive line. That's some weird sound bites, but you're going to be having yes, weird sound bites sir. if you're yelling "woo pig suey" yeah. uh, and appealing to people within the state of Arkansas. It, it, but it, it seems like a solid hire. It can't be worse. That's really all I have to say about right. that hire. Like it, it can't be worse than what that program became at the end of Bielma and into Chad Morris. Like it's, it's embarrassing. Now, Arkansas was once a they're not an elite college football program, but shoot, they were. They won national titles. Yeah, they, they won. They were top ten. What this century? They with McFadden and Felix Jones, Felix Jones, and, and Bobby Ryan, Petrino, Ryan Mallett. Yeah, I mean they've had like that's a reputable once again a reputable program in college football that has just fallen on some unbelievably hard times. It it can't get worse. And Pittman's a likable dude, offensive line coach. He's got the yes sir phrase, which is pretty funny. Uh, yeah. I'd, like I, I know as a Texas fan, I'm supposed to hate Arkansas, and I don't really root for Arkansas by any stretch. But I'm, I want them to turn things around a little bit and get things back on track because uh, it's it's been tough to watch them like get blown out by North Texas and stuff. That yeah. shouldn't be happening. Two more jobs. One was probably the biggest risk I think taken in the SEC, and that was Missouri. Uh, got rid of Barry Odom, who I think the story was went to Missouri Brass and was like, "Give me a vote of confidence. Give me an extension." And they told him no, and basically told him to get lost. Uh, that program was kind of at a weird stage. They they were competing-ish in the SEC East, but I think their ceiling was kind of coming down every year. They go and hire a guy who had only been head coach at Appalachian State for one season, in Eliah Drinkwitz. And Appalachian State's one of the best G5 jobs, uh, or is one of the best maintained G5 jobs in the country, consistently produced results, uh, beat Power 5 teams, teams even go to Boone every now and then to play them. And Missouri thought after one season, that's all they needed to see. And and he's going to call plays, too. He's loading all this on his plate in his first season in Columbia. That's going to be one to watch just because there's so much, I think, that could go wrong. Yeah, uh, I'm very intrigued by this. Uh, Drinkwich coached under Brian Harson when he was at Arkansas State and also followed him to Boise State where he was the offensive coordinator there for a year. Then he went to NC State as a coordinator before the – Appalachian State job opened up. Shot in the dark. Yeah. This is a, it kind of feels like an effort. Let's give it a go. Let's see what happens with Mizzou. I mean, they, 
they were great when they went to the SEC, right? They played mm-hmm. two conference championship games in their first two years or two of their first three years, but they've just been so mediocre, so average that they're looking for a spark, and hopefully this unknown guy might be the next uh, ne- next big thing in coaching. And then the last one, and maybe one of the more shocking changes this entire offseason, was Chris Peterson stepping down at Washington yeah. and Jimmy Lake taking over. And we've seen this trend in the past few years with uh, Bob Stoops stepping down and Lincoln Riley taking over. And you had Urban Meyer step down and Ryan Day take over. You've seen some schools try to get out in front of a coach going on the downhill and try and get the next big thing and put energy in the program and make sure that that you know, end-of-career downtick, which Texas saw from 2010 to 2013, doesn't happen at their program. And I think this year, uh, you know, Chris Peterson has done great things at, at Washington, won the Pac-12, made the playoffs, but they went 6-5 and five this year. And for Washington, they knew that they probably had – one of the hottest assistant coaching candidates in, in the entire country. I believe Jimmy Lake was a name that Texas considered when yeah. they had a D.C. candidacy before they promoted him to head coach. So you're taking a guy who's won and has a successful track record of recent winning success and saying, look, we think you maybe kind of jumped the shark at this point. We want to stick with a young up-and-comer. And you now that Washington instigated this? I, I think so. Okay. I, I mean, and Chris Peterson has said that I don't think he's said I'm done, but he's given a lot of comments to make it sound like he just wants to take a couple years. Right. Register. Yeah, I'm himself. wondering but what his uh, ulterior motive is here. Is he going to do the USC bit, right, in again. a couple of years, come back? And I I don't know. I think this was more of Chris Peterson's doing. But your logic makes sense. I mean, Jimmy Lake was a highly regarded defensive assistant, and we've seen this move made a couple of times in college football, so I assume – they were okay with it, but I think I think Chris Peterson had done enough there to where this was this was a his call type of deal. Mm. But you're right; he has said some things to hint towards him coming back. And I think one year, two years, five years, who knows? He's he's only 55 years old now. Bob Stoops took an XFL job. He seems pretty content with not coaching at but least how at a high level. Do you think that is? Yeah, exactly. Like he he seems content not coaching at a high level or a, a time schedule demanding type of level. I don't think that's going to be the case for Chris Peterson. I think he'll be back at some point, but you never know. At this point, it really seems like at Washington, you got to take care of Oregon. Taking care of Washington State's probably about to be markedly easier mm-hmm. with Mike Leach not there. And plus, they did it pretty easily anyway. Right. Jimmy Lake would brag about. Well, they, they, don't won, they won, what, seven in a row? I mean, Peterson never lost to Mike Leach. He would brag about how the fact that Mike Leach rarely changed their offense. And it's like, oh, it's the same stuff every year. You don't have to face Utah. You don't have to face anybody. Of, you know, and that's basically the class of the South, unless they're on your rotating schedule. Mm-hmm. You just basically have to get through Oregon. And you, some years Stanford. Some years Stanford. They're taking a little bit of a step back, though. But if you do that, you win the board or whatever they call it, you're probably going to be in Santa Clara or Las Vegas now for the Pac-12 title game. Yeah, it's it's nice to be in the Pac-12. I mean, look, Texas is in the Big 12. It seems pretty easy to get to the title game in this conference, too. But, man, Big 12, Pac-12, ACC, it's like, hey, if you can just win these one or two games, then you've got a good shot to get to your conference title game and well, if you only have one loss going in, that means you have a pretty damn good shot to play for the college football playoff. So, yeah, I, I think this is a good situation for Jimmy Lake to step into. This is about as fortunate as it gets uh, for a first-time head coach. Uh, you mentioned that Washington was a little bit disappointing last year, and I guess they're losing their quarterback, Jacob Eason, but 
They've recruited so well. They've got a ton of talent. They'll they'll be fine. They're going to be okay with Jimmy Lake. That'll be a relatively seamless transition, I would think. That's about all the coaches I have. Do yeah, we want to talk the the one Texas coach yeah. in change yeah, that we before forgot we get to out of here? Get over or go over in our recent. So Jay Boulware, recently the running running backs and special teams coach, I believe, at Oklahoma took the associate head coach for special teams slash tight end spot on the Texas staff, replacing Derek Wareheim, who had gone to New Mexico to be offensive coordinator. Boulware is a guy who's recruited well. Uh, you think a lot of those Oklahoma running backs, and a lot, a lot of it is due to that offense, but you still have to get the guys who can run those yards in that room, and he helped to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking of their special teams. Austin Seibert, I mean, how much does a guy really coach a kicker? Is that the guy same... still there? He's no, not he's there, with the Browns. He? He's sure? with all the other Sooners That guy on the was Browns. there for 20 years, man. Now they're going to have another guy, Cade Burkett. Yeah. He's going to be there yep, for 20 years? Yeah, because he played as a freshman. He had a solid year this year. Mm-hmm. So there's some special teams chops. You add his, you add Boulware's to uh, Coleman Hutzler. You got some guys who have coached special teams on this on this staff. And now you have a guy who, at the tight end position, obviously it's an important spot in Tom Herman's offense, and you want to make sure it's coached the right way. But it should be a recruiting spot, and it was. And uh, I believe Boulware was a big one of their volume recruiters yeah. at Oklahoma, and you're probably going to see him do the same thing at Texas. And this was this past weekend was a lot of commits first or commits and prospects first opportunity to meet Boulware and to meet some of the other staffers uh, that Tom Herman has hired. So um, I think it's. It's a good hire. I think it's an improvement over who was there with Derek Wareheim. Mm-hmm. Derek Wareheim did really well in recruiting East Texas, but there was a lot of That's portions. That was a, there was a lot of portions of his job he didn't successfully manage, and you're, I think you're hoping that Jay Boulware is an upgrade, especially as a guy coming back to his alma mater. Are we going Boulware or Boulware here? It's a going, good question. I'm going Bullware. Bullware. All I right. I don't know. You could be Bullware's right. in the football program. We're going to have to ask him. Yeah, you know, Bullware – Played at Texas, started his coaching career at Texas as a GA, also helped out with the tight ends from 94 to 96. And, yeah, you hear that, well, he was a running backs coach at Oklahoma and he's coming here as the tight ends coach. That that doesn't make sense. Most of Bullware's coaching stops have involved coaching tight ends, including at Utah, at Arizona, and at Auburn. So he's like he's coached tight ends at a high level of college football. And, yeah, I mean, Oklahoma's been the class of this conference. They've won this league five years in a row. If you can't beat them, hire them. That's you know that's not really the the worst slogan ever. Um, I'm excited. I had a buddy who covers Oklahoma, who once this hire was made, I asked him, you know, what are your thoughts on Jay Bullware? He said, dude, he's a hell of a recruiter. He's a hell of a recruiter, which is very important. And I think you mentioned the special team success that he had at Oklahoma. Special teams really struggled for Texas this past year. It kind of felt like that wasn't focused on as much as it should have been. So he's got some skins on the wall, being the special teams coach at Oklahoma. The running backs were great. Uh, I really like this hire for Texas. I think this is one of the best, if not the best, non-coordinator assistant hires or position coach hires, probably makes more sense, that uh, that Tom Herman made this offseason. Now on Texas staff, I think you have three coaches who received a degree from the University of Texas. Tom Herman, of course, as a graduate assistant, got his master's. Oscar Giles, defensive line coach, and now Jay Boulware. Yep. So you've got three guys on staff who can point to their own experiences at Texas. And while that's not a thing you have to have, 
doesn't hurt in recruiting. And no. I think for a guy who's going to be a volume recruiter or most likely going to have a lot more recruiting on his plate than just tight ends, it's a nice little thing to have. Hey, I was here before. Here's what you can do. Here's what I did. You've got great recruiters on this staff. Those guys you mentioned, Jay Valai seems to be a big-time recruiter of the new cornerbacks coach. That's great, but, man, recruiting at Texas isn't that hard. Like, you need guys who can develop, and I think Bullware's got a proven track record of developing dudes, both on special teams but also at the tight end position. I think he's a major upgrade over the Derek Wareheim hire at tight end. So, We'll see, man. I feel like uh, there's a lot of upgrades. You know, I know Tom Herman missed out on some of his top choices for coordinators and position coaches, and I know not all of these are so-called splash hires. They're not all household names that Texas is bringing in, but I I pretty much think every single one of these guys is an upgrade. Time will tell, Mm -hmm. obviously, but most of these guys have more skins on the wall taking the Texas job than the guys Tom Herman brought over from Houston to fill out his initial staff three years ago. Valai seems like the only one where there's – questions yeah and like I've mentioned on the radio show yeah individually there's probably a lot of well-reasoned concerns for him but pairing him with Ash you hope even in this make or break year can set up for something to where hey he's I mean he's still he's still a corners coach just a guy who worked in the NFL and you don't just not know football if you're doing that but B you know he's a guy who can recruit has the trainer connections has DFW connections and you hope that he can do it all and learn you know, if you're gonna have, if you're unfortunately gonna have another guy learning on a job, it's probably best to only have literally one on your staff. Yep. But he's also known as a very good recruiter. Well, it's a make or break year for Tom Herman, and <clears> I think he is putting a lot of faith in Chris Ash by allowing Chris Ash to make the Jay Valaya hire because you shouldn't have guys learning on the job mm-hmm. ever at a place like Texas, but especially if this you're season. on, yeah, if you're on a seat as hot as Tom Herman's is, you can't afford that. Mm. You can't have a guy learning on the job and apples to oranges, I guess, but that's why the Cowboys hired Mike McCarthy instead of going with Lincoln Riley or one of these coordinators who have never been a head coach. Like, you feel like you're ready to win now, you hire a guy who's going to win now, who's, like, proven that he can succeed as a coach at his level, at this level, and, and, and has a winning track record about him. Jay Valai, it feels like he's the only one that's not there, but his past defense was bad last year, and if they struggle again this season, I, I can't imagine they'll be as bad as they were. Uh, in 2019, but if they struggle again in 2020, then a lot of folks are going to look at that higher like, dude, this you, you kidding me? You really did this? And that could ultimately what does Tom be what does Tom Herman in. Corners are going to be under a microscope for sure. Yep. All right. We out of time. We're done. Good stuff. Good stuff. Thank you guys for listening. As always, hope you enjoyed it. The 1-0 podcast brought to you by Audiovisual Consultations and Altstat Beer. Please take a listen to the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast as well with Kevin Dunn and Paul Wadlington. They released an episode yesterday. Please like our podcast, subscribe, share, rate us five stars if you would be so kind, and send us an email, everyonegetsatrophy at gmail.com. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, feedbacks, whatever you got, we'll take it. Follow Joe on Twitter at josephcook89. Check out the great work that he does over at insidetexas.com. And follow me on Twitter at Brad Kellner. Listen to Midday with Trey and BK from 10 to 1 every weekday on the Horn and hornfm.com. We're done for the day. Thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, you all have a great one. And hook them.